0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, I'm Dinosaur Don Gluke, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is What If, Episode 1B, covering a period of What If. This is classic What If from 1978. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and today we're going to be talking about six issues of What If, numbers 7 to 12. And I'll read off for you uh, the, the content of these just so that if you you know want to skip ahead for a very specific issue, I don't have the timestamps, unfortunately, but I can tell you which, which what ifs we are talking about here. We're going to be talking about what if someone else besides Spider-Man had been bitten by the radioactive spider? What if the world knew that Daredevil was blind? What if the Avengers had fought evil during the 1950s? What if Jane Foster had found the Hammer of Thor? What if the Fantastic Four were the original Marvel bullpen? And what if Rick Jones had become the Hulk? So it's almost been a year that we've been living in this COVID-19 world. And when the pandemic first started and everyone was working from home, I did uh, a live stream from home every single day on my Facebook page where we would take one issue of what if every day and just talk about it. It was just me, mostly me, just by myself. People could come if they wanted to. Not very many people took me up on that offer. But I was just talking about these issues. We go through kind of page by page and I would talk about the things that I think were kind of cool about them. And so now this podcast episode is a compilation of those live stream recordings. So some of it may seem a little bit disjointed. There'll be references to stuff that you see on the screen that, of course, because this is a podcast, you can't see on the screen. Uh, but if you want to see the original video with the, the pages of art that, I, that I'm that i talking about, you can go to my Facebook page, Epic Marvel Podcast, and uh, look up those in under the video section. Uh, you'll hear a few interview clips from Don Glute and Roy Thomas. I did a couple of interviews with them uh, several months ago. They are already up on my podcast feed. And so if you go to epicmarvelpodcast.com and look for the, the episode index at the top of the page, then you'll be able to find those interviews pretty easily. But I do want to make a public apology to Don Glute, because I'd started these live stream episodes, I'd done a bunch of them, and then I t- contacted Don Glute for an interview. And at that point, he told me that his last name was pronounced Glute. It's spelled G-L-U-T, but the U has an, a double O sound. And uh, I'm sure he gets that mistake a lot, which is why he corrected me even before we started the interview. But that was too late for these episodes that I'd already live streamed. So throughout this episode with the multiple issues that are written by Don Glute, I say Don Glut, And I'm very embarrassed about that. So I just want to apologize, Don. I'm very sorry for uh, not just not being aware. I had no idea. So uh, please forgive me, For all of those times, you hear your name mispronounced. Uh, In some of the cases of these episodes, I forgot to hit my recording button for my own little recording device before I started the live stream. So the sound quality, I think, in a couple places is going to uh, change and get a little bit worse because I have to pull the audio from the actual recorded live stream, which wasn't as good as coming through my microphone and my recording device. So that doesn't happen very much. And so most of it will be just fine for you to listen to. And I appreciate everybody's comments and uh, everyone who was involved in the live stream. But let's get right to our episode and tackle these issues of what if. What if someone else besides Spider-Man had been bitten by the radioactive spider? What if number seven? This is actually an an interesting story because it's three short stories. It's not one big story. We get to explore uh, the possible alternate timelines of three different Spider-Man characters, Flash Thompson, Betty Brandt, and John Jameson, as as if they had been bitten by the spider um, and had become Spider-Man or something similar to Spider-Man. This is... This, this is a very different issue than one that we've seen in the past, but it's quite good. I really enjoyed it. So we're going to flip through here, thanks to the wonderful Marvel Unlimited, and take a look at the pages within. Um, this one's written by Don Glutt and Rick Holberg with Sam Granger on the inks. So Rick Holberg was one of the artists in the previous issue, and Sam Granger was the inker in the previous issue. So we get uh, a little bit of a returning team here. Don Glutt did an issue a couple of issues ago, and he'll be a, sort of a regular through these next several issues here. But yeah, let's just dive into it. The first, the first few pages are telling us all about Spider-Man. They're, we get to see him save a kid who's fallen out of a skyscraper window. Thank goodness that that, that Spider-Man was swinging by at the time. And then it gives us a little, a one-page recap of his origin story. And then we we dive right into the action. But before we dive into the action, I want to just talk about these pages here. Do we really need to have these, these intro pages that are talking about Spider-Man in the present day? We actually do. They serve some purposes because they explain all of the essential information that we need to know about Spider-Man in order to understand these next ones. So that if you have never, ever read a Spider-Man issue before you will be able to uh, pick up on this one. So here, let me see if I can find this panel here. Spider-Man specifically says, good thing I invented this handy webbing of mine. That's actually a very critical line uh, f- coming up later on in the story. And then this one that says, because this job t- uh going to take more than just spider strength and speed. And I sure wish a certain publisher with the initials JJJ felt the same way. So he mentions J. Jonah James and his relationship with J.J.J. So eh, let's see. Face it, Webhead, how do you eat those refried beans through your Spidey mask? Messily, that's how. So there's there's a couple of things in here. They seem like just kind of Spider-Man banter, but it's actually to serve a purpose as we read these stories later on. Uh, I like how Rick Holberg has taken the Ditko panels and and redrawn them in his style here. Uh, I, I love it when we see these panels, because uh, each artist has their own little spin, just slightly altering the angle or you know the 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 shadows or whatever to make it look like their own style. It's very cool. Uh, and here we have kind of the same panels, but with Flash Thompson, Flash Thompson is the one who's being bitten by the radioactive spider. Now, in this story, he's bitten and he's with these two girls and they see him uh you know the, the the whole scene where usually in in the original it was spider-man who would be was about to be hit by a car and he jumps on the side of the building instead flash thompson kind of hurls the car to the side and they're like how'd you get so strong and he shrugs it off and instantly right away sees that he could win some money in a wrestling match and takes on this guy crusher hogan and and accidentally snaps his neck and kills him in the ring so, right, it's just the action starts right away. Um, the thing that's interesting about Flash Thompson is that while Peter was uh, sort of an introvert, Flash is very much an extrovert, So and he's very full of himself. So when he realizes that he has powers, his initial reaction is to just say, that's who I am, I'm so great, and he takes it on the road, takes it in the ring. He's very, he's very much a showboat. And, uh, and, but then everything seems to go wrong. Uh, the death of this character here, uh, Spider-Man's origin always has to include a death of some sort, and in this one, Flash Thompson is directly responsible for the death, rather than indirectly responsible, like Peter Parker was with uh, when the gunman shot Uncle Ben. So this one, I think, hits home even more for Flash Thompson. He gets a, a wake-up call, like "Holy cow! I just killed somebody with my bare hands!" I think mean, that's. That's way different than saying, I didn't stop that guy, and then that guy went and killed, killed my uncle. Um, he finds out the rest of his spider powers and decides that he is going to become a superhero. And that's not much of a stretch because we know in the comics how much he admired Spider-Man. So if he had the abilities of Spider-Man himself, then yeah, he'd go for it. Um, he alters his own costume. He gives himself a webbing cape. I think that's pretty funny. He says here, I'm not so bad if I do say so myself. I got to admit, the cape makes it. All right, then, doers, you'd better look out because Captain Spider is coming. That's <laughs> Captain Spider. So then we see him battle a couple of the early Spider-Man villains like the Chameleon and the Tinkerer. And the vulture from Spider-Man number three. And uh, so here's why these lines were important before. When Spider-Man said, good thing I invented that webbing. Well, Flash Thompson is not the same sort of genius as Spider-Man is. So, of course, he hasn't invented webbing. So when he's doing an air battle with the, with, with the vulture, um, and the vulture kicks him off, all of a sudden, he has nowhere to go, and he falls and he crashes down into the street and dies. And that is the end of Captain Spider, a very short-lived career. Peter Parker is there and finds out it's Flash Thompson. And I don't know, he always seems to be there at that pivotal moment where he uh, he, he admires Flash Thompson even though he was a bully. He admires Flash Thompson for what he did. So I thought that was kind of cool oh one other moment kind of at the beginning of this is that once flash thompson gets bit by the spider peter sees the spider and he's a smart guy he kind of puts two to two two and two together he picks up the spider he says i'm gonna keep it and study it at home so that's kind of funny um but serves a purpose a little bit later and then uh yeah so that is the end of the first tale and once we get to the second tale with uh, we start all over again with the same scene, except this time Jay Jonah Jameson is there to cover the the whole experiment for the paper, and he's brought along his secretary Betty Brant. Betty Brant, of course, doesn't know Peter at this time because Peter starts working in our continuity starts working uh, at the Daily Bugle after he becomes Spider-Man. So right now he's still still in high school, but he sees her get bitten and comes to her aid, and he notices the spider, and he he sort of comes to her defense, saying that, you know, she she, should, she just got bitten by a spider. Let's give her some time off so she can recoup, and make sure she's not going to get worse or anything. And uh, they go for lunch, and we find out that she's got some spider strength. So Peter is here this whole time, which is kind of cool. So she he puts her through a series of tests. They find out that she's Got the powers of spider, and he invents the spider web for her. So now there's a little bit of a difference from, from Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon was all by himself, but Betty Brandt has some help. She makes herself a costume, and it is one of the worst costumes in Spider-Man history. This is just an absolutely terrible, terrible costume. <laughs> so, But she's got the webbing. J. Jonah Jameson, of course, doesn't like the superhero vigilantes, so he is... Uh, smearing her in the newspaper, and then we find out that the same thing happens here. Robber get is uh, being chased, and Spider Woman, or Spider Girl as she calls herself, doesn't do anything to stop. Oh, she's she's out. She's out of web fluid. When she hates to hurt people, so she's not going to go after him. And then this person ends up killing Uncle Ben, and then she is the one who chases the burglar down in the warehouse. And there's Rick. Holberg uh, recreating some more of those Ditko panels. This is a classic one with the little dots in the eyes. But she decides to give up being Spider-Girl because she realizes that she just went kind of nuts on the burglar and knocked him out, and she abhors violence. And so she's like, you know what? If the powers are making me do this, if I feel this way, then I just can't do it. So she leaves her costume behind in this very famous panel, um, an homage to a very famous panel by Ramita from Spider-Man 50. Peter Parker looks back and it's like, hmm, the costume. So then we move on to the third story, the same opening here. This time, John Jameson, the son of J. Jonah Jameson, is bitten by the radio after Spider. He figures it out right away, what's going on. And J. Jonah Jameson walks in and sees him doing this. And this one, in this one, we find out that he's happy that his son has powers. Of course, this is always the thing. If Spider-Man has powers, bad. If his son has powers, good. Anything his son does, can't be happier so he gives him makes him a deal he says we'll make you a superhero we'll make you a star and gives him a costume he's going to be in a spider-man astronaut spider jameson they call him and this time the newspaper uh james jonah jameson uses his newspaper to praise the spider superhero so the the big change here is that now because john jameson is a superhero he's not going to be an astronaut so there's a different pilot who gets into the space shuttle, the space capsule. And so now Jameson has to go, instead of Spider-Man going to save this this capsule with John Jameson in it, now John Jameson has to go save the capsule with somebody else in it. And it ends up not going well for him. And he crash lands and gets killed by the shuttle. And in the end, Jameson uh, builds a statue to immortalize his son and dedicates his newspaper to praising the efforts of other costume vigilantes. Very, very different um, very cool. I like the fact that it's the same powers, but because it's in a different person, J. Jonah Jameson has a different reaction to it. So it's, yeah, very, very interesting. And I like the way how they, they play with all of the different aspects of these characters, and they all still stay in character, but because of the the person who has the powers, it's, it all plays out different, which is the point of <laughs> what if. So that's I guess that's expected Uh, the nice twist at this here is that the watcher says uh, and I have spoken of fate that inevitable end toward which certain beings are inexplicably drawn behold then I have shown how apparently trivial incidents can alter the course of history a fateful scene which occurs soon after each of these series of tragic events a scene which in all three cases is identical and involving Peter Parker And it shows Peter Parker, he has saved the spider in all three of those scenarios and is inspired by all three of them in their own separate timelines. And so takes the spider, creates a serum based on the spider's venom and gives himself spider powers and becomes Spider-Man in all three of those things. After the original Spider-Man dies, he becomes Spider-Man. So I think that's a really cool way of tying it all together and tying the three stories so it's not just three separate stories it's like this is they all tell a different origin of Spider-Man that just starts a different way. Kind of neat. I like that. I had a lot of fun with these three stories with this whole issue. Great great artwork, great storytelling. I it was nice, nice fast-paced and because there's three stories a lot was packed in there. The letters pages which are not in the these uh, in online in the online version talks about the future of what if and this is a pretty crazy page they list a whole ton of ideas of uh, there's a whole page full of what ifs possible what ifs in the future and they say that they wanted to make a contest so they asked readers to pick their top three uh, yeah, top three choices out of the list of which ones they think should be made into actual issues. And they, the people had to mail them in, and Roy Thomas was going to tally them all up and, uh, and make the stories based on that. So that was kind of cool. And apparently this was so popular. Uh, what does it say here? The big news around Mixed Up Marvel this month is that the first few issues of What If were such smash sellouts that Stan the Man wants the mag to go monthly, just a couple issues from now, as soon as Rascally Roy and his California cohorts with a bit of help natch from the Eastern Seaboard can gear themselves for the task. Very cool. So right away, this was such a smash hit that it's going to go monthly, like pretty much right off the bat. That's very good for a title. Usually it takes a little longer for them to realize that they want to go from bi-monthly to monthly. And this is a double-size issue as well. So to get double-size comics out on a monthly basis, they must have had really good faith in What If. And it did last a few more years, so that's that's good. Uh, next up is What If, issue number eight. What if the world knew that Daredevil was blind? And for this episode in particular, Um, It's a good idea to have on hand Daredevil Epic Collection Volume 1, The Man Without Fear, because there are several issues in this book that are referenced in this one particular issue of What If. And so uh, it's very good to have this as a reference because um, Daredevil, the the Daredevil stories just aren't generally as well known as, you know, like the Fantastic Four stories or the early Spider-Man stuff. So uh, I know that I had to pull this one off my shelf in order to fully understand, uh, or not understand, but to fully appreciate this issue. And all of, because it spans from Daredevil number two, all the way to Daredevil number 20. So there's a lot going on in this one. What if the world knew that Daredevil was blind? And uh, let's get the credits up here. This is written by Donald Glutt, Donald F. Glutt. Penciled by Alan Cooperberg and inked by Jim Mooney. Now, just a note about these two guys. Uh, these are two artists that generally I'm not as keen on. Uh, but for for the, this issue, I think they actually make a really, really good team. Uh, separately, I'm not as enthusiastic. I, re- I I saw a bunch of Jim, Jim Mooney art in uh, the Miss Marvel Epic Collections, I think the second one especially, um, because he took over the penciling duties in there. And it was okay. And then Alan Kupferberg, I've seen his work in Thor and such. And also it's it's just kind of hit or miss. And But the two of them seem to do a really good job. And it has a very nice classic kind of style. There's a lot of nice details and nice, nice images. So uh, good for them for working together. Uh, It seems to have paid off quite a bit. Okay, so carrying on here, the first few pages, we get Daredevil battling in his yellow, his original yellow outfit, which he only has for about the first six or seven issues of Daredevil before he changes it to his classic all-red costume. And we see Electro, who appeared in Daredevil number two. In fact, these scenes are sort of uh, recounting the events in, in Daredevil number two the watcher looks a lot like the kingpin in this one and not as much like the watcher so that's kind of strange Uh, we have this one moment here where daredevil's trying to lift up the barbell this is one of the pivotal moments in the original issue as well because it allows electra to come and sneak up behind matt they really they really play up the fact that he's blind in those early issues of of Daredevil because he he you know he he's stumbling around in the dark and he's like what is this I feel it's, it feels like a barbell and he wouldn't do that today any writer who uh, they just use the radar as a second sense kind of and and kind of I don't know they Daredevil doesn't act the same way but he did back then he's like oh what is this is a it's a barbell I think I can throw this And that is the moment when Electro strikes. Now, the big what-if moment here, there's always um, something, a point in history that changes a little bit. And that sets off a series of events. And this moment happens to do with Spider-Man. Because in the original issue of uh, Daredevil and Daredevil number two, Spider-Man doesn't bust in uh, to uh, to help out Daredevil. Instead, this time... Uh, Daredevil has to, or sorry, in the original one, Daredevil has to take on Electro by himself. But here, Spider-Man happens to be swinging by, sees Electro go into the building, and then goes in to investigate, and therefore Electro is not able to sneak up on Daredevil's back and surprise him. So that's a big change to what's what's happened in history here. Uh, And how does that affect the future? Well, Electro starts throwing his blasts his electricity thunderbolts, and he's like, that should be bright enough to blind somebody, but he's unaffected, and he puts two and two together and uh, and then figures it out and takes the, se- the secret to the news, and then all of a sudden it's public knowledge that Daredevil is blind. So how does that affect things moving forward? Well, for Daredevil, he just kind of keeps on uh, business as usual. Oh, there's one pivotal scene here. I love it. After Spider-Man confronts Daredevil, he says... Um, well, they've gone now, speaking with the police and Electro, they've gone now, pal. Uh, now, do you want to do a palaver? He says, oh, I guess there's no use in my denying it anymore. And Spider-Man says, oh, that, uh, it also explains your costume. My costume? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, let's face it, masked man. Nobody with 2020 vision would have designed a tacky yellow and et cetera outfit like that. <laughs> I love it. Um, and so it's Spider-Man that encourages him to get a new costume and so now he has the red costume and i think this is so that they could have daredevil appear in his yellow sorry in his red costume for the rest of this issue because otherwise the stories that he's telling um if this follows our, our regular timeline he's still in the yellow costume for a few more issues here especially during the first confrontation with the owl here which is told in uh, daredevil number three so a lot of these scenarios play out exactly the same. In fact, the, this panel here with him busting through the window and the next panel where he's uh, kicking these bad guys into the owl, those are taken directly from the original issues, just with updated updated art, art and style. Uh, the only difference in this story is that the owl knows that Daredevil uh, can't see, so he, he has outfitted his lair with... Um, Noise devices so that it overwhelms his other senses, and the gu- the bad guys are able to get the drop on him. Uh, it's interesting because the original issue, he gets captured, um, even though he's the the owl doesn't know his secret he, he, because Karen walks in. The owl takes Karen hostage, and Daredevil gives himself up. But in this one, because of all of the confusion of the of the noise and everything like that, the owl retreats and and uh, daredevil and karen get away so that's an, an odd change that you would think that because he because the owl knows a secret it would be worse for daredevil but in this case it worked out to his benefit uh, because of this karen also puts two and two together because she knows the daredevil is blind and they form a relationship um foggy sad about that and then we skip ahead and we get to daredevil the events that happen in daredevil number nine which is in my opinion, um, kind of one of the weirder issues of Daredevil. See, Karen has been going at him to see this eye doctor, and the eye doctor lives in this isolated community with, with a giant wall around it uh, called Lichen, Lichenbad. Uh It's a, it's it's like kind of a a, a city that's stepped uh, lost in in medieval times, and the, the dictator is obviously a terrible person. Uh, but then the, And the doctor is being held hostage, and he doesn't even want to talk about it. And these are the events that happen, the same in this what-if issue and the same in Daredevil number eight and nine. And he's like, no, no, you can't talk about these things. The walls have ears. So in the original comic, uh, Matt goes by himself. see the doctor because he has no intention of of getting the operation he's just doing it to humor karen and but in this one because karen knows the secret she goes with him to this this medieval city so there's a difference right there and he actually does go ahead with the procedure and he gets his eyesight restored and we don't know what the the effects of that are going to be uh, because these guys bust in and trying to capture everybody Um, the main bad guy is this knight here and, uh, and he's going to put a, engulf the, the world in a, a cobalt cloud that'll rain down a, a radioactivity on everybody. So in the original issue, the doctor finds the, the machine that's causing all of the radiation, and he goes to shut it off, and he dies in the process. But in this one, Karen... Because she's here, Karen sees him go in there and he's like, Daredevil, you got to help the doctor. He's in, he's in trouble. He's trying to shut down the atomic pile. And Daredevil goes to rush in and does it. The radiation affects him negatively, takes away all of his powers. So now he is powerless. But now he can also see. And the first thing he sees is Karen and she's beautiful, solidifies their relationship. they get to live happily ever after. He's not a superhero anymore. So that's very very interesting. the 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 main thing here is that Karen got to go with him. If Karen hadn't gone with him to this to this European country, she wouldn't have warned him about what the, the doctor was doing. Daredevil wouldn't have gone into there to stop the machine. So he would have had his sight and he would have kept his superpowers. So it would have been, he would have been a much more effective superhero. So interesting that he is not doing that in this one. Uh, Now he's regular, and the story doesn't stop there. In fact, there's a lot more. Now we're fast-forwarding to Daredevil number 20, where the owl kidnaps Matt Murdock and uh, doesn't know his secret identity, um, but kidnaps Matt Murdock and put someone, sets him up in this phony trial, which was that was another weird issue. There are a bunch of weird issues in the early Daredevil, uh, Daredevil stories. But Matt has to pretend to be Daredevil for the first time in a long time. This time he has no superpowers, but remember he's also a trained boxer and is in really good physical condition, so he can actually hold his own during these battles. But the owl notices that he's not using his extra s- strength, and when he turns on. Um, the noise machines—it doesn't do anything. So eventually, Daredevil saves the day, and he realizes that uh, as long as he keeps being a, a superhero, people are just gonna—he he can actually be more effective now because he doesn't have superpowers as the district attorney. So he says he's going from DD to DA. So kind of a cool ending there. Seems to all work out. Matt and Karen are gonna get married, and. He is a successful district attorney. Foggy Nelson's still helping him out, and the world is a better place. Very different type of ending than what we are used to hear in the in the what if ones because usually someone dies. In fact, the letter page in this one says specifically the first letter page. <laughs> here it says, unfortunately, there's one small problem. So far, not one story has had even a slightly optimistic ending. Why, in the last two issues? Why, in the last two issues alone, three Captain Americas have been killed, and before that, the original Iron Man snuffed it. The Hulk was made totally human, only to have the Thing become equivalent nasty. And Reed Richards lost the only girl he ever loved. This is how these stories have ended. Depressing, isn't it true? So he's like, "You guys got to shape up, or I'm not gonna, I'm not going to uh, continue to get this." <laughs> so here we have a happy ending for Daredevil. Although, you have to wonder, is it really going to be that happy, because what about all those villains that Daredevil never faces? Do they eventually go on to to accomplish their goals and do bad things, or do other superheroes step in and take over his rogues gallery? We don't know. But that is the content of this issue here. Now there's also a bonus story, what if the spider had been bitten by a radioactive human? This is by Scott Shaw, who is a great cartoonist. With,
2: you know, with it, you know. And one of them, one of them was Scott Shaw's idea. Scott Shaw's uh, first comic book story probably was. We were talking at the comic book store where he worked at that time. I don't think he had done any professional comics work, and he says, uh, um, "You know, I said would, we just talked, I said, well, you know, why don't you do a story about you know one of a radio one of a radioactive boy a bit a spider or something?' Because <laughs> I I lost all the kind of fun to do a spider, and you know, it was. Just something we started talking about, and you know, maybe it was his idea. We were just kind of talking about what we could do, you know. And I just thought, well, you know, it's going to be a seven, eight page story in the back of a book. How bad can it be? It's not going to cause anybody not to buy the book, and it it might be funny. And it it turned out to be, you know, kind of a nice little story.
0: I love that because it it all, um, he has done this story and it's sort of in the style of, um, of a not brand kind of a story it's humorous it would fit in perfectly in like the peter porker spider-man or spider ham world Uh, but it kind of falls in between because this is the 70s not brand Ech was the 60s and peter porker was the 80s so there's no place really for these types of stories to appear but i'm glad it appeared here because it's actually quite funny it's really basically just the origin of spider-man but told from a point of view as if all the characters were bugs and first of all we have Roy Thomas as the watcher um, the scans of this issue are pretty are, are just hit or miss so you can't really see a lot of Roy's face here um, there's another there's a better picture in, down below here but that's Roy Thomas as the watcher and Scott Shaw has created this new character called Webster Weaver the teenage spider who uh, through a series of, an, of events gets bitten by a radioactive human the guy who is controlling the uh, the science experiment, and he finds out that he has fantastic, gets fantastic powers. And everything plays out exactly the same, of course, goes on TV, doesn't stop the burglar. The burglar kills his uncle, Bug, and then he faces a whole bunch of bad guys from Spider-Man's early days. I love these, these, these characters. Marvin the Hunter, Culture Vulture. I think one of my favorites here is uh, Leapin' Lizard. <laughs> I love that name. So that's good. Yeah, it's a great splash page. Um, even more, even more bad guys and villains here. The Schlocker, Porcius the Hampire. He's probably one of the newest villains at this point in seventy-seven or seventy-eight, whatever year this is. But yeah, funny story. Uh, most people probably aren't going to care about it, but it's pretty humorous. It's it's well, it's a good cartoony issue, and I liked it a lot. So, so in the next issue, the next issue is What If number nine. What if the Avengers had fought evil during the 1950s?
2: Some of the ideas later on, as I got uh, my friend Don Glute that I saw a lot out there in L.A. Uh, after I you know moved up there when I was starting to step up. Some of them were his ideas, some of them were mine ideas. Uh, like the idea of the 1950s Avengers, more or less. That was my idea, and that was one. That, that, that's the only one, and not that Don didn't do a good job, but that's one of the only ones that I wish I had written myself. You know, just just because I was real close to that one. Right. But Don did a, a good job with it. He brought in that robot and gorilla. Those were his ideas. My idea was I wanted. Be, I wanted to use the three D man who was uh my new character and I wanted to use two or three of the old characters like Marble Boy, you know, and whatever. And uh uh you know and, and just say what what if the what if there had been some kind of group in the fifties, you know? It's funny how these things happen.
1: Roy said he wanted me to do the sort of the uh, if the Avengers had formed in the fifties. Yeah. But he did not want me to use Submariner, Captain America or the human torch. And I don't remember what the reason was. And those have, to me would have been the logical ones because there were versions of those characters in the 50s. You right, know?
0: yeah,
1: exactly. So I had to say, well, who, who are the ones I know off the top of my head? Well, you know, there was Marvel Boy, of course, you know, Venus, you know. And, but I still needed some more. My knowledge of pre-code comic book heroes back then was really limited. But I I, loved, I had a big, fairly big collection of the horror comics. And some of them, I, so I just started going through the, my collection, flipping through, is, were there any characters in there that could have made a superhero character if they were slightly interpreted in a different way? And I found the gorilla man character, and I found the robot character, you know, and that's how those characters came about. They weren't, they were originally just standalone, one shot horror characters, and uh, the villains, too, like uh, Skullface. You know, those are all from the horror comics. Right. A couple of the villains, I think there was a character called Electro, maybe, that came from the 19th. I had an issue with the 1950s, a coverless issue with the 1950s Captain America comic, and there was a character in there called Electro, I think. And uh, that's where I found him. So, again, it was just sheer luck in some ways, you know? (laughs) And then I used as many... uh, you know, I wanted to use the yellow claw, now you probably couldn't do that, you'd get away with it, but you right. considered racist or something. Yeah. But uh I wanted to use the yellow claw as because to me being a continuing character in the fifties for real and you know, we get the common communist threat and all that, it just seemed the logical person. And then he had the uh, Jimmy Woo or whatever his name
3: was. Yeah.
1: He, he there was a logical hero right there. It was all built in, yeah. you know. And so um so it, it, it all just sort of fell into place. And we had the 3D man, you know, that, uh, that we were doing. And uh, that was set in the 50s. And so we just, uh, just brought
0: them all together. I have a special guest today, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. Hello. Hi there.
3: I'm the co-host from the Avengers Issues and the Marvel Epic Podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah. We've been going through the 90s Avengers and having a great time with that. And you specifically really wanted to be on this Live stream with this issue, and why is that?
3: Yeah, because there is what the, the issue that somewhat introduced the team that will become the uh, agents of Fate last some many years later,
0: right? And it's uh, it's very apropos, absolutely. So, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, we have this is such a weird issue for a number of reasons. Um, one is just the variety of characters that we've never seen or heard of before because. The 1950s comics today are really not easy to get they're they're not hard they're they're really not easy to find they're not reprinted very much um only a handful of them have ever been reprinted and so it's it's definitely a very big part of history
3: and during the issue they do many references to these old issues that have been reprinted in uh, old masterworks that has been reprinted these last years.
0: Yeah, not even all of them have been reprinted in masterworks. Some of them are still uncollected and uh, and kind of lost to time at the moment. Um, those masterworks, it's kind of a shame because they they did a lot of those Golden Age masterworks and I guess they just didn't sell because they stopped doing them. And uh, that's, yeah. that's the stuff that is so hard to find that it doesn't get reprinted. So I hope that they can either find a, a, an avenue. Well, actually, they are finding avenues for that because we've had a bunch of like the Kirby Monsters Omnibus and uh, the Ditko. There's a couple of Ditko Omnibus collections now. And there's yeah. even one coming out um, called they just got solicited the other day called Jack Kirby Love and War, which collects a lot of his love stories and his war stories mm-hmm. all in one omnibus. And those ones, um, I think the first appearance of Yellow Claw, the first few issues of Yellow Claw are going to be in there in that book. Oh, okay. So that's cool. And that means Jimmy Woo as well. Yeah, so I hope that Marvel kind of keeps that going. And myself personally, I, I don't usually buy the Omnis, so I'm hoping that maybe that material will become available in a trade paperback in some way. Yeah, so that, me, yeah.
3: I'm mainly a digital reader, so yeah, as as long as it comes out in trades, it's gonna be a guarantee that we are going to get a, a digital version,
0: probably. Yeah, exactly. Now, and Marvel Unlimited has been uploading some of this stuff recently. We got the first few issues of Yellow Claw, I think, on Marvel Unlimited, um, recently, as well as the first 11 or so issues of Menace, which is the first appearance of the robot, the robot man in this one, yeah. and they have some Marvel Boy up there. Uh, I don't and they think they have Venus up there as well. So they have a good, good deal. Yes. Yeah, but we'll get into that as we go along here. Uh, so this issue, what if, uh, number nine, what if the Avengers had fought evil during the 1950s? Now, nice uh, Jack Kirby cover. Really like that. Uh, he was coming back to Marvel uh, at this time and did a ton of covers over the past year or so, um, around this time here, uh, as well as taking up chores on some some new books. So we have a script again by Don Glutt and art from Alan Kupperberg, just like on the last issue, but uh, this time we have Bill Black doing the inks. Um, not as flashy as the last issue, but it's it's still fine. Uh, the thing that makes this issue different than the other ones is that the Avengers are the ones kind of telling this story, not the Watcher, although the Watcher is definitely there. But Iron Man calls everybody together and says, Hey, look at this trans dimensional viewing device that I got.
3: It sounds funny because it looks like he, he's gathering all the other Avengers and let's sit down and watch a TV show yeah. <laughs> for
0: a while. Exactly. Yeah, let's, let's watch this. And they, they, it has a great splash page of all the, these 1950s iconic moments like Elvis and Eisenhower, Sputnik. I love Lucy three D movies. It's just a, a snapshot of the nineteen fifties there in in one yeah. panel.
3: And we'd have Elvis Presley and his famous smile.
0: Yep, that's right. <laughs> and then they just watch the events unfold in this viewing viewing scope or whatever it is. It's kind of a weird thing. And then every once in a while, we'll get the watcher piping in saying, "And what the Avengers don't know is this." <laughs> Very strange. But right off the bat, we're introduced to Jimmy Woo, uh, FBI agent Jimmy Woo, who is a holdover from the Golden Age. And uh, he was actually in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as uh, as a character in Ant-Man 2, right? Yes, that's it. Uh, kind of a goofy character, but then everybody in that movie was goofy. He really but liked I don't magic.
3: know if in the casts. They specify that it's Jimmy Woo, but in the movie, they don't really call him Jimmy Woo. I think they call him Jimmy or Mr. Woo, but they don't specifically say that he's
0: Jimmy Woo. Well, if they call him Jimmy or Mr. Woo, wouldn't that make him Jimmy Woo? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, I'm just glad that the, that he's there because he's kind of a cool character. And I like that he dates back this far. That's, just, that's probably one of Marvel's oldest characters. But anyway, we're he we're seeing here the first several pages are him gathering these the, a team of heroes and we can go through them one at a time because they're they're just kind of odd characters. The first one he meets is 3D Man, who is not actually a character from the Golden Age of Marvel. He's a character that was created about a year earlier by Roy Thomas for Marvel Premiere in Marvel mm-hmm. Premiere number yes. thirty-five. That's it. Yeah. Do you like this character? Um. Uh, he,
3: he seems somewhat strange by his design. I haven't read much of him, but he appears uh, more in the, during the um, Kurt Busiek and George Perez run on Avengers just after hero's return. And he he was at the time he was Triathlon, I think. And later on, uh, during Secret Invasion, Triathlon becomes the Three D Man. He he gets the powers of Three D Man. Oh,
0: okay. 3D man's powers are weird. He has the powers of three people, basically. He has the the strength times three. (laughs) He he was in an accident. Uh, In fact, it says, uh, we can can skip right ahead over to the, the page that has their origin stories recapped in like three panels. Uh, Because it's really funny Um, He's a pilot And he's captured by Skrulls And this is Skrulls that existed Like appeared Because this is not a a Golden Age comic They're retroactively fitting these Skrulls Into 1950s history Even though they first appeared in Fantastic Four in the 60s But he gets in an accident Um, No, the, the explosion of the flying saucer Cat gets him and his brother Caught in the explosion And they all combine So there's the pilot, there's the brother And then there's him They get combined into one person, but only when they wear special glasses, special 3D glasses, (laughs) and they can only be together for three hours, and then they have the powers of three people. So he calls it like his tri-vision and tri-strength and (laughs) all this. It
3: it somewhat reminds of Firestorm from DC that is the... Uh, two people that get merged together in True. one being. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Except they, I think they don't. Whereas those people have kind of similar, like the consciousness is still there for all those people. A three D man is it's it's a perfect amalgam of all three. It's not three separate consciousnesses in one. It's all three consciousnesses becoming one consciousness in one body. Um, it's just a kind of a bizarre power and he doesn't really do much except for punch things with his tri strength. (laughs) Uh, a couple comments here. Mm -hmm. Frank says, Hey Curtis and Tommy have fun guys. It's a fun book, but Alan Skipperberg is not really my cup of tea.
3: (laughs) I'm not sure if it was intentional or if it was the autocorrect that played the trick on Frank.
0: Oh, I think Frank is intentional. (laughs) Skipperberg. Um, okay, and also Ronald says this is his favorite issue of What If. Uh, it's it's a pretty cool issue, that's for sure. Tons of history uh, and so different. Uh, so let's move on to the next character here. Yeah,
3: it's Marvel
0: Boy. Yeah, we meet Marvel Boy, and he his stuff has been reprinted in Marvel Boy Classic. He has these uh, these bands on his wrists that all then eventually go to Quasar.
3: Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So there's there's the...
0: lots of avenues it that this is. character kind of goes. <laughs> but yeah he he's here marvel boy uh he first appeared in marvel boy number one back in 1950 i think it is and uh, he has a lot of different kind of he can fly he's got strength he has some sort of mind control powers or something yeah. he, he just has a, yeah. a, a nondescript set of powers
3: and unlike quasar this one doesn't really mention the power of the bands, the power rifts that quasar
0: uses right usually we're briefly introduced to the yellow claw, which uh, plays on the typical Asian stereotypes to make him look really evil um, <laughs> And then then his daughter doesn't have the same Asian stereotypes, so you know that she's she's good. <laughs> it's like that's the were their way of telling us who's who. Uh, same with this German guy with his monocle and his scar. you know he's evil too. But anyway, we meet Jan of the jungle. And uh, she had her own comic book in the 1950s, as it says in the notes down there. But we're not here to recruit Jan. We're actually here to recruit the Gorilla Man, who is a a sentient gorilla creature with human intelligence. He can talk and and everything. In fact, he used to be a, a man until he turned into a gorilla man but they need him because of his strength.
3: Yes. Yes. Want to jump up to his origins, to the, the recap of his origins?
0: He just says, um, Ken Hale, a man obsessed with the idea of a gorilla man, a legendary monster, half man and half animal, supposedly to exist in Kenya during this time. Hale's obsession drove him to seek out the creature, but after slaying him, Hale himself was turned by a strange curse into the new gorilla man. And that tale is told oh. in Men's Adventures number 26. And Gorilla Man, I believe, is on the Avengers today in uh, Jason Aaron's run, right?
3: I haven't read the, this run yet, but yeah, he's in Jason Aaron's team. Oh.
0: Oh, here's a little correction for us. Ronald says that Marvel Boy became Crusader, a villain in Fantastic Four, and then Wendell Vaughn became Quasar. So yeah, he's had. There have been many iterations for the Marvel Boy character over the ah, years. All right, yeah, yeah,
3: because I've seen him appear. I haven't read the uh, the, the Roy Thomas. I think it was Roy Thomas run, and yeah. uh, I've seen him on the on the covers, and he was called the Crusader. But then I didn't know he was a villain at this time. So, right. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. Uh, Ronald Jay.
0: Yes, thanks, Ronald. Um, okay, who's the next person we meet here? We uh, we also see robot this new robot here uh so yeah namora comes out of the sea she's been looking for namor for this whole time which is kind of cool because he won't surface until fantastic four number four in the 60s so it's kind of like she's been on this quest for well over a decade to try to find namor and then she stumbles across this robot they pull the robot out of the sea and it's gonna they're gonna it's gonna join their team And this one, it says, at about that time, a scientist needed a special regulator to perfect his new robot, but his unscrupulous business manager sabotaged the robot and programmed it to kill the creator. That's a terrible manager, which it did. But without the regulator, the kill order remained. So it goes just, it's literally a killer robot. And after killing both men, the human robot sought out more victims and got short-circuited by water and did not get far. And that's is told yeah. in Menace Number Eleven, and that's one of the issues that's in Marvel Unlimited. So you can check that one yeah. out if you want.
3: And, and what's more funny is that uh, there is also Robot Man in DC. In this case, not uh, the one that appears in, uh, in Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol, of
0: course, yeah, yeah. that's right.
3: But there is another character called Robot Man, and he appears in All Star Squadron by Roy Thomas, and he makes an appearance also in golden age uh, limited series
0: and there's a comic strip in the 19 in the, like a newspaper comic strip in the 90s called robot man that i absolutely loved today it goes by the title monty and it's, it's a oh, funny okay. one it's nothing nice. to do with superheroes at all but i think actually this guy is called the human robot he's not called robot man he's called the ah, Human Robot. Yeah, right. so he's different right. than like machine man and all that uh, technically I guess he's a, a human underneath but uh, yeah so we meet this guy and then we also get introduced to Venus the the goddess the Greek goddess Venus who is the daughter of Zeus the cousin of Hercules and um, she can make people love each other or love her or you know she has that that power yeah. to, to manipulate emotions and she yeah, had even, her own comic in the 50s. Even,
3: even robots
0: <laughs> Even robots well this one's a human robot so yeah. yeah, that's that's okay. Um, okay, so they gather the team together finally and um, and we yeah, we learn their origin yeah. stories and we find out kind of why the purpose that they're all together after they they start fighting a little bit. Uh, And then they find out what their purpose is. And they form this team called the Avengers.
3: And what's funny is that when they dug out the human robot from under the sea, Namora just appears, says, hello, I'm Namora. And he just helps. Pull pull it out of the water, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, human robot and we don't ever hear from her anymore in the story.
0: And that's the same with Jan of the jungle. Uh, She just kind of appears and then disappears. And I think they just wanted to... Uh, to, to throw in as many of these characters as they could yeah. into the story.
3: Okay. She stayed in the jungle to protect the jungle. While meanwhile, the gorilla man stayed, remained with the team.
0: Right. Uh, okay. So they're going to avenge to fight the, uh, to avenge the crimes of the Yellow Claw, and uh, and then we are introduced to our villains who are, have also assembled their own team of bad guys. The, this is a, also an equally ridiculous number of uh, <laughs> characters <laughs> with ridiculous power sets. Skullface, the skeleton of an alleged demon, burned at the stake centuries ago, and uh, and restored to life in this century by fifty million volts of electricity. (laughs) Whoa! And that's told in um, Mystic Mystic Number Six. Number Six. And then we have this guy here, Electro. Uh, Yet when it comes to electricity, I, the Russian assassin Electro, am its master. And yeah. that one is told in Captain America 78.
3: And not to be confused with the Electro, the, the Spider-Man foe. Of course, yep.
0: And then we have this guy. Um, careful with those bolts of yours, Electro, unless you like to be put under ice by the Cold Warrior. Whoa. And he is fr- uh, from Marvel Premiere number 37, which is the 3D Man issue. So he's the 3D Man villain. And then from oh, Marvel hi. Boy number 1, we have this guy with the mask. He's called Video. <laughs> I am the great Video. A laboratory explosion gave me X-ray vision and with the power to kill and the power to kill with my prolonged stare. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, we have a great campy bunch of villains here.
3: Yeah, and what's funny is that when he looks through the screw face, he says, whoa, this man is really easy a living skeleton. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> which is important. It comes into play later on in this issue. So there we go. We have so many characters that we'd never heard of before. Um, and even if you were buying this in the, in the late 70s, I, I'm not sure how easy 1950s comics were, were were to come by around this time. I mean, I know that was only 20 years earlier, and if you think about today, 20 years ago, was the year 2000, and it's, it's really easy to find comics from the year 2000 now. But uh, and, and you don't even print as many now as you did in the 1950s. In the 1950s, you printed. They printed tons yes. of comics.
3: Because I don't know if at the time in the late 70s there was um, uh, reprints of the stories from the 50s from right. DC. I know sometimes they reprinted the old stories, but uh, from Marvel's side, I'm not so
0: sure. Well, and if they did reprint them, it was all the Silver Age stuff. Kirby uh, Lee and Kirby material and Ditko material got yeah. reprinted a lot, but yeah, not much from before that and the people just didn't hang on to their comics so they would toss them in the garbage or whatever and they would sentence the and, and comic shops weren't a big deal there were a few of them but they weren't as commonplace as they are now so you wouldn't be able to have just an outlet to find old back issues so it's interesting that they have a whole issue surrounded with people like comprised of, of people so many characters that people may not really be familiar with um, it's a very, very interesting piece of history, but it's hard to get attached to, you know, 12 different characters in one issue. Although Don Glatt does it, does, and Alan Kupperberg do a fine job of, of pacing it out. But anyway, we, let's get on with our story here. We find out Yellowclaw, his plan is to kidnap the president uh, and torture him. We don't exactly know why, but they do that. And they, uh, it's Eisenhower. He's the president. And and the the team goes after him, and we can tell they're not quite a full f- full fully formed team right now because they're doing a lot of fighting, kind of like how the Avengers themselves actually squabbled quite a bit in the early issues. Um, yeah. But then we yeah we go and we find out that Jimmy Woo has a relationship with with Yellow Claw's daughter. Isn't that always the case? <laughs> um, and yeah, and then we just get into the part of the issue where there's just a big battle. And this is really just to show show off all of these characters' power sets because we really haven't, other than the the little brief introduction, we haven't really seen them in action. So we get to see how effective they are in combat, and um, and yeah, 3D Man. Oh yeah, here's the part. Um, there's a part where Marvel Boy throws the skull skull face into the cap, ice ice guy. I can't remember his name, <laughs> and then he just falls apart because all he is is a bag of bones. Yeah.
3: And there, there's a funny one-liner. So oh, It's one page earlier, sorry. Yeah, when Cold Warrior freezes uh, Venus and he says your love power is, go- is getting frigid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, your love power is going frigid. Good line, totally. Yeah. One, uh, well, Ronald says that Venus is much, much less creepy than Eros or Star Fox from Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true. Because Eros used his powers for bad. <laughs> Yeah, for his own selfish purposes. <laughs> I like the way that this guy, Electro, is drawn. The inking on him, they make him look really, really hairy by giving him kind of thicker a thicker outline and like even you look at his when he's fighting a human robot you can see on like his shoulder in this close-up panel of his face that he's just probably got hair all over his face or something all over his body it's a very very different inking style than the sleek looking inking that we get on the human robot so like I like how they're differentiating the characters like that through that that penmanship. And eventually, they overtake everybody. Yellow Claw gets away. Jimmy Woo um, goes off to find them, and uh, the, they all have a a little powwow with the president in the end. Yeah.
3: just uh, just one thing that slipped over because uh, I think it was uh, Ronald that said Venus is less creepy than Star Fox. Yep. But vaguely tries to seduce Marvel Boy when he he helps her the the page before.
0: Right. So that's and that's ambiguous because yeah, he says. I'm supposed to be smarter than most Earth people, but I was wrong when I deduced that my feelings for you were all caused by that strange power of yours. And then she's like, well, what do you think, Marvel boy? So it's like maybe (laughs) she influenced him or maybe he just generally does have feelings for her. Yeah, kind of ambiguous. Whereas Eros is is definitely like, you woman, come here and love me. (laughs) Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, that got him in trouble many times. Yep, sure did. uh,
0: (laughs) Um, yeah, and then at the end, we're, we return back to the Avengers, where they're reminiscing about, uh, yeah, just imagine if that actually happened. So what do you think of this issue? Did you like it? I, of course you like it. You, uh...
3: yeah, I liked it very much. And just one, uh, one or two, let me say easter eggs about that team. Is that because they appeared again in Avengers Forever, the limited series by uh, Kurt Busiek and yep. Carlos Pacheco. Yep. But uh, what made the people forget about them is that because their reality was erased by, I think it was Immortus or Kang. Oh, okay. Yeah, their reality was erased, so the people didn't remember them. And they appeared many years later during, I think it was, uh, Incredible Hercules. Because at the time, in the second half of the, it was uh, Greg Pak and Fred Van Lente uh, run. During the second part of the run, there was uh, one issue. Don't uh, if it was one issue about Hercules and the other about Amadeus Show. But during the Amadeus Show story, they show that there was a, a, a past stories with uh, Jimmy Wu fighting the the criminals. And they also mentioned the super team that will become the 12 in the limited series by John Michael Straczynski. Right. They also appear during Incredible Hercules in a backup story.
0: It's cool that they have had a lot of play over the years that people kind of keep revisiting these characters. Uh, I like it because there's so many stories to unpack. It's a decade that never really gets talked about. So it's cool that uh, that Marvel decides to pull him back, or and, and like good job to the creators that that keep reviving this team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and- by the
3: way, yeah, the three team man also makes an appearance during during Bill Mantlo's run an incredible hulk he makes an appearance during the first, i think in the uh, 250 or around
0: yeah this issue. totally yeah that's 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 really cool and i would love to get a nice collection of 3d man adventures because he's such a weird character yeah. <laughs> let's get it marvel make us a, tr- a 3d man trade with all of these appearances okay a couple more comments here um as we, yeah jim says agents of atlas started here you've already. Uh, we talked about that kind of at the beginning yeah. of the stream. But yeah, we can mention that again. Jimmy Woo t- brings up his, uh, creates his team. I love the title Agents of Atlas because in the 50s, Marvel Comics was called Atlas Comics. Yeah. And so the Agents yeah. of Atlas is made up of characters that were from Atlas Comics. So it's just a wonderful yeah. little nod to to Marvel history that they've yeah. folded into, into uh, so, canon.
3: Yes, and they're called the, uh, the Atlas Era
0: Heroes. Yes, it's very, very cool. Uh, Shane w- notes that so many what-if issues in that first volume ended up getting used by Marvel in continuity later, like Hulk being intelligent and a- Agents of Atlas becoming a team. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's intentional that they do that kind of thing. We'll talk about in a few issues from now when uh, Jane Foster becomes Thor. Of course, that's very famous now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, down here at the bottom of this, this page here, it says in the next issue, Thor Conan, the F- Fantabulous Fantastic Four... It says, one of these mighty Marvel features will be spotlighted in What If Number 10. Be here. It's like, I would have loved to see <laughs> Thor, Conan, and the Fantastic Four all together. But no, we're only going to get one of the three. Yep. Uh, so we'll have to see which one that's going to be.
3: Maybe maybe it's going to be the case uh, at these times uh, because uh, Marvel got the rights back to Conan. And Conan is in Savage Avengers. So maybe we're going to see something. <laughs> that
0: would be great. I'd love to see that. Yep, yeah, that'd be really good. Uh, okay, so the the letters page here. He says it says um, last issue we deliberately didn't announce precisely which of several imminent stories would appear in What If number nine. Naturally, we and perhaps you had hoped that it would be our long-awaited Conan in the twentieth century tale which Roy Thomas had been talking about pretty much since issue number one of this of this series. He talks about it all the time in these letter pages. But alas, at the last minute, several events, not the least of which was Big John Buscema winging off to Angoulême, France to pick up an award and be a major guest of honor at an International Congress of Comic Arts Fans. Anguilam is like the biggest comic art uh, show convention in the world. It's, it's a big deal. So the fact that John got oh. to be guest of honor is very, very cool. But he still had 15 pages or so to pencil of that, of that issue, so they couldn't get it this time. In fact, it's not going to appear until issue number 13. Uh, Thus, it is with pride but a little advanced promotion that we present this time another little brainstorm of Roy's, one he conceived back when he first invented the 3D Man a year or so back. Namely, the idea of a superhero group set in the fabulous 50s. The only thing is, Roy never could figure out a place to try out that costume conclave until What If got a few Smash issues under its belt. Meanwhile, Roy himself got too busy to work out the details of the 3D Man-Venus-Marvel-Boy trio he thought up, entered Don Glutt who helped Roy by doing first draft scripts of the second and third 3D Man appearances in Marvel Premiere, although his credit accidentally got left off the final one. So that's too bad. Um, But yeah, Don, uh, what does it say here? Don's even more of a 1950s buff than Roy, so he was raring to go and dug up Gorilla Man and the Human Robot, not to mention Jimmy Woo and the original Yellow Claw, and a whole bunch of uh, baneful baddies from the pre-60s comics. Uh, to prove his point but who is the rascally one to argue with enthusiasm like that that's very cool yeah i i emailed don because i would love to get a uh, an interview with him about these early oh, days of what great. if so i'll hopefully he'll email me back and we'll be able to hear from him
3: yeah, and by the way, uh, Yellow Claw makes an appearance during the beginning of Steve Heart's run on Captain America. Him and Suan also. And I'm, I'm not sure if Jimmy Woo appears, but yeah, Yellow Claw and Suan appears. And uh, don't know, well, I'm not sure if it's a spoiler, but yeah, for sorry, <laughs> more than 40 years ago, but Suan supposedly dies in, in these stories.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Well, there we go. This is our issue for uh, this stream. And uh, yeah, a lot to talk about. I'm glad that you were able to join us and give some history because I wouldn't have been able to speak to future appearances of these characters. Oh. That's for sure. I'm glad that they've come up You're welcome. and uh, I'm going to have to seek out. Some of those stories, especially the 3D Man one, because uh, he's—I have a, an odd fascination with that character now.
3: <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, the the title of the story during the Bill Mantle run is in the cover. It's what happened to the 3D Man. So I haven't oh, okay. read it yet, but
0: yeah. Ah, um, is it in one of the crossroads? Those crossroads trades? Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, no, it hasn't it's been reprinted that? yet.
0: Okay, well, let's we'll get the epic in collection. In nice. I will look it up. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for joining us for, right. this after, for this issue. You're welcome. Hi. What if Jane Foster had found the hammer of Thor? I think that
1: might have started as a joke. Yeah. You know, again, at one of the <laughs> parties or get-togethers, you know, hey, what if, what you know, Thor had a sex change or something like that. Yeah, you know? right,
0: yeah. And, uh, and
1: the logical thing was um, Jane Foster. Yep. Somebody else had found the hammer. <laughs> I guess it kind of worked out.
0: This is a very interesting issue. Because, uh, because it's actually become part of official Marvel canon. Well, not this story exactly, but as you know, in Jason Aaron's run in Thor a few years back, Jane Foster really did become Thor. And her journey went a lot different than the one in this issue here. And we're going to find out a little bit about Jane and, and her journey, how she came to become Thor, and what happened as a result. This is a great issue, a lot of fun, dives deep into Thor history, so if you, uh, if you want, I would suggest having on hand while you read this Thor Epic Collection Volume 1. Uh, it's called The God of Thunder. And I would also suggest you can skip Volume 2 because apparently not much happens in there. But Volume 3, The Wrath of Odin, the last few issues in this book also get referenced a few times in this story. And then, of course, the major epic to Wake the Mangog, the whole first Ragnarok story, plays heavily in this issue of what If. So you'll want to have this issue on hand as well, or this book on hand, because um, all three of those books have a lot to do with what we're going to be talking about today. And of course, if you have this what if complete collection, this is where we're going to be drawing our content from. Restoration is very nice in this issue, something I like to point out because it's been spotty over the past few few issues. Oh, first thing I want to point out is that the cover says, just wait till you lay eyes on our startling shock ending. (laughs) So I'll be sure to point out that when we get to that point there. So this issue is written by Don Glutt. Let's see here, get down to the credits. Don Glutt, uh, drawn by Rick Hoberg with Dave Hunt as the inker. And they all do a great job, um, as well as our colorist c gafford let's see what does the c carl sorry carl gafford and carol lay so they do a really good job laying all of this out as well moving on we have a really really nice double page spread of the origin of thor they do an excellent job rather than taking up four pages and just retelling the origin story they they have a really nice montage this digital version does a terrible job of lining up the 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 i guess the two pages they don't have the original artwork so they're not filling in the gap i do have to say that the binding of the trade paperback is really really tight to the point where you can't open the book wide enough that you can see some of the the words down here (laughs) so the binding is really really tight john says beautiful art thanks john yes this is really, really good artwork. Very, very classic. It looks excellent. The coloring is just wonderful and the layout. I love the way that they have the, the cave and the, the the Saturn men, all the stone men from Saturn rather. It's all laid out really, really nice. But let's keep on going here. Of course, that's not how this story is going to play out. In this version, the key thing that changes is that Jane Foster decides to go on the trip to Norway with Don Blake. In the original, Don Blake goes by himself, but this time she goes with him. And so when the stone men of Saturn attack, they get split up, and it's her—it's Jane that falls into the cave and manages to find the magic stick that turns her into Thor. Really, really nice splash page, again, uh, by Rick Holberg of Jane Foster as Thor. And then we find out that um, uh, she, she kind of puts two and two together. She calls herself Thordis based on someone she knew from nursing school uh, a norwegian girl from nursing school so she's not she doesn't call herself thor because that's a guy's name i guess and so that's the that was one of the big hang-ups so i remember when when the jane foster thor came out uh, in jason aaron's run as well why is she calling herself thor isn't thor that guy over there because that thor still existed it was like no thor is the idea of thor rather than the name of the person so there's there's i don't know it was all confusing Seemed to work out in the end, though. Now she goes by Valkyrie. But anyway, she saves the day. They go back to town. And there's that famous scene where Loki sends a leaf into Heimdall's eye so he can he can sneak past him while he's blinking. And, uh, and yeah, then the events start to unfold. So here's the famous scene with uh, the negative people, the people who've been turned into negative, which is from Thor 85. And the events sort of play out here. And we can see that Jane has whittled her stick down to an actual magic hairbrush made out of the same wood. So she just has to bang the hairbrush on the ground in order to become Thor. And I loved Loki's reaction. By Odin's beard, though that attire is the Thunder Gods, that shapely beauty is not Thor. <laughs> and that's pretty much everybody's reaction when they come across Thor for the first time. But the events of this uh, play out the same. In fact, even the part where Loki... Creates a duplicate Thor in order to get the hammer away from Thor, but doesn't. But the change is that he doesn't create a duplicate female Thor. He creates a duplicate Thor and tries to hypnotize Jane Thor into giving um, Thor Thor back his hammer. But she breaks out of the hypnotic spell because it's it's different. And this is where the story changes, and uh, and and she does not give up the hammer. Loki's defeated and has to come up with a new, different type of plan. And so his plans from now on are now behind the scenes. He says, Odin, you better call your son over to to Asgard just to take a look at him, because he's back now, and of course, she comes, Thordis comes, and Odin is forced to banish her because he (laughs) because it's not his son. Kind of uh kind of rude, but that's the case. One of the defining moments here also is Sif is also grieving the loss of of Thor because she was supposed to marry Thor when she reached womanhood. And so now she's not going to do that because she can't marry Thordis, especially since Thordis has been banished. Uh, And so now we return back to the events of Thordis on Midgard, battling a bunch of the early Thor villains, including the Radioactive Man, the Lava Man, and also the combo of Cobra and Mr. Hyde. Those early issues... Are not, of, of Thor are not that great. I've done an episode on, on that book. If you want to check out Thor episode one, hear me talk about that. And of course, Joy, uh, he, she joins the Avengers. So the story doesn't really take off until we get to the point where Thor is about to enter his Odin sleep. And this skips ahead all the way to thor number uh, 154 which is kind of the beginning of the mangog story and it's, thor is supposed to kind of be the protector of asgard during the odin sleep but of course he's banished Thordis, so no one's there to protect him so sif takes it upon herself to find the original don blake and this is where it gets really confusing because don blake is thor in the early issues of thor Thor and Don Blake are two separate things. They just kind of share space. When he turns into Thor, he is a different entity or something. But then it's revealed later on in um, in, in Stan's run that it's a little bit different. Odin had banished Thor and uh, and and he put he created this Don Blake persona and trapped kind of Thor's mind in this body of being the Doctor. And so Sif is trying to regain regain the his his memories. And these events kind of play out similar, except for the fact that he's not Thor. Uh, as as it's noted here in 153, Sif goes to the hospital, uh, just like she does in the comics as well. And I like, there's a there's a change, there's a shift in tone in the inking in, these la- in the last half of this book, where things become a lot more darker and more moody. The, the, the shading is a lot thicker, and I'm not sure, it only credits one inker, but I don't know what the difference is. But I like the change. It adds a really cool kind of a feel to these the last half of the book, because the the tension gets a lot higher and the stakes are a lot higher, especially when we start to int- we're introduced to the Mangog character. So you gotta if you haven't read the Mangog story, it's sort of the climax of the Lee Kirby run. Um, this the peak, and these events sort of play out in a very similar fashion. Um, as as they do in the regular comic, except Thordis is the one who saves the day. Now, uh, the ending here is kind of a... It's a disappointing ending because Odin forces Thordis to give up the hammer um, and return it over to Don Blake. And I thought, that's kind of lame because hasn't she proved herself? She literally saved Asgard now from Ragnarok. She literally did that. And... Odin's like, but that's too bad. You have to still give up your hammer to Thor, the real Thor, because destiny or fate. Actually, I want to point out back, let's go back a couple of pages here because there's a page that I want to point out. When Loki manages to get Thor just to go back to Asgard, Odin's really, really pissed <laughs> at the fact that that Thor is a woman. And he says, ordinarily, it would be Loki I would blame for such base blasphemy, but in truth, what hath befallen Thor is even beyond his evil power. The real villain be fate itself. <laughs> I love, I love the over-the-top dramatic, dramatic acting of, of everybody in Asgard. It's just it's always wonderful. Uh, okay, let's skip back to the beginning because I want to talk to you about this shock ending that we mentioned earlier. Odin feels bad for for Jane. And so, as you know, as a consolidation prize, I'm going to make you a goddess. So Jane becomes a goddess, a real goddess. But she still loses the man that she loves because Thor is now in love with Sif. And that sort of reflects a little bit of what's happening in the comics at the time as well. And Odin, though, (laughs) grieve not, dear lady, for theirs be a love ordained by a power beyond that of even Odin. Jane says but tell me good sire or tell me sire what good is it to be immortal if uh, i don't wish to offend but i think it would be better for you to make me a plain mortal again and he says and deny thyself the love of yet another who have lived perhaps too long without a woman at his side and she says am i understanding what you're saying to me sire is the almighty odin proposing to me and odin says hast odin ever been known to jest And so, yes, in this reality, Odin is not married, so he marries Jane, which I find to be a little on the odd side, maybe a little creepy. I kind of feel like Odin had a crush on Jane like this entire time, and he's like, well, I can't marry Jane if she's Thor, because Thor is supposed to marry Sif, so I need to get... Jane to give the power back to Thor so I can marry her. So I think that's kind of how it felt like it played out to me. Um, so they get married, and she becomes the Queen of Asgard. Thor and Sif are happily married as well. Everything turns out to be wonderful. This is a happy ending for everybody. Kind of a weird ending, but a happy ending. But yeah, this was a good issue. I, even though it had kind of a weird ending, it still was really, really entertaining. Uh, I'm enjoying Don Glutt's writing from the issues that he's done so far, and Rick Hoburg is a, is a great artist as well. If we can't have Kirby drawing, drawing uh, Thor, then we might as well have uh, Rick Hoburg. He's doing a good job. Um, there is a letter page in this one. Uh, Greg Russell says, that was creepy. He says, thanks, I didn't have that issue. Uh, yeah, this is a kind of a creepy ending, but there is a letter page at the back. Let's see if they include this in Marvel Unlimited. Us to see oh yeah they do whoops in here i mentioned in a in a couple issues back that they had a contest and they, they had a whole letter page that was filled with possible what if issues and they said if you write in your top three issues we will make our we will make future what ifs based on these the most popular picks so some of these did get made and some of them didn't i think I'd have to actually look back at all of the issues to make sure. I know some of them did, like what if Gwen Stacy hadn't died? What if Rick Jones had become the Hulk? Uh, What if different superheroes formed the Avengers instead of Thor? That was the 1950s one, I think. What if the real-life bullpen had gotten superpowers instead of the Fantastic Four? People really wanted to see that, so that's actually the next issue. What if Conan defeated Red, Sonya, in combat? I hope that one comes up at some point. What if the Avengers and Fantastic Four merged into one big super team? I don't think that that one happened. And also, what if Howard the Duck had been elected president in 1976? There's one that I really want to see, but I don't think that that happened either. Uh, Yeah. And there's also a little note again. This is the ongoing drama of this Conan issue that's supposed to be coming up. Uh, It says, also along those lines, Rascally Roy had an idea for a story which combined a couple of his thoughts... It's being begun at this very moment, but not by Mr. T, who's decided that, except for the long-promised Conan what-if that he started to script at last, that he'd prefer to stave off the dreaded deadline doom on mags like Conan, Savage Sword, Red Sonya, Invaders, and Thor. Uh, Let me see here. Steve Gerber's so busy these days with Howard the Duck that he might not get around to doing that tale for us, which is too bad. Simon and Schuster book of Silver Silver Surfer. That's interesting that there was going to be a Simon and Schuster book, a Silver Surfer book. That ended up being a, something different, I guess. That never happened. I would have loved to see that. Uh, oh, yeah, and there's a Beatles advertisement at the back by David Anthony Kraft, but that's not anything to do with what if. That's just an advertisement. But let's find out what the next issue is here. What if number 11, this is an odd one, what if the original Marvel Bullpen had become the Fantastic 4?
2: That was kind of funny. Uh yeah, Jack kind of double crossed me there, but it was okay. I was happy I'm happy he did it. <laughs> Um, uh, I, uh, among the ideas I had for the beginning, one of the ones I wanted to do, I thought it'd be kind of fun if we did a thing where the Marvel bullpen, which I had in mind to be Stan, uh, Jack, Flo Steinberg, because she had been there through 68, was one of the few women there. Uh, otherwise it could have been Marie, I suppose, and, uh, myself, you know? And so I gave that a, the assignment to, to Jack and, um, uh, and, and he, he was going to kind of, you know, plot it and kind of plot it out. So I had... Relatively little to do with the story. I finally decided, you know, I'll just let. I said, Jack, you, you know, I don't remember how the money worked out, but but he could just do whatever he wanted to do with the story and everything. And I was I would come in and write it later on, and th- that he was supposed to use those four people. When I got the thing back, he had he had sort of wiped it, wiped me out of the whole thing <laughs> oh, no. and put in Saul Bross. Right. Well, you know, I was a little annoyed because I was going to be the human torch in this of the story and everything. I had figured I figured out stands, Mister Fantastic, and Jack of course is the thing and so is the invisible girl or yeah. the inevitable girl or whatever it was and uh and he'd he'd gotten me out and put in Saul you know who uh had did the production manager but then I got to thinking about it Saul Brodsky he was there from the beginning you know a couple of years, two or three years before I was four years really Um uh, he did the he did the uh logo for the fantastic four that upper lowercase logo is Saul
0: wow
2: he inked issues three and four So I thought, you know, hey, Saul Brodsky deserves to be in this. You know, nobody knows who Saul Brodsky is. He didn't have that much name value to the readers. But I said, you know, it makes a lot of sense. So I just let Jack go for it. right? And the only thing we had to change was uh, Jack liked to uh, kind of annoy Stan occasionally. By doing little things. And one of the things he liked to do just to get back at Stan because he knew he didn't like him. The like it was to call him Stanley, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, which is, of course, his real name. But Stan hated it. He, he didn't like being called Stanley. He said he had taken that name and made it into Stanley and he didn't like it and every time that Jack used the word Stanley in the uh, text that was the only change he looked at it and said that's okay but just take all the Stanleys and just make them Stan
0: <laughs> so we had to,
2: that's, so we had to look, change those all the way through the story you know other than, other than that uh, it, was, it, was, it was kind of a nutty story I mean what what kind of thing is this I mean you got the S people and this, S stands for scrolls I mean yeah. it's not much of a mystery <laughs> no. you know? but the, so the thing that was really good about it was A the idea and for which I will take unblushing Credit, yeah, and B, everything that Jack did in terms of just the art and conceptualization, with uh, I- including having Saul be the, the uh, Human Torch. But I mean, and he even had some good lies. I love the one where it's, where uh, Stall is flying in the air as the Human Torch, and and uh, and everything, and then he starts to fall, and it says, I, "I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm falling." Says, "You're surprised or whatever." it was, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was kind of funny. Jack was without my; he, he wasn't at that stage the kind of right doing the kind of writing that Stan would really like at Marvel, but. He, he, he was a, such a bright guy and, and he's such a conceptualizer and he could turn a good phrase sometime too, you know? So, so I let that go. And I think, I think probably that's the most significant to me, the most significant issue of, of what if in any one of the series is the fact that it was really, in a sense, if you counted, it was Jack Kirby's very final Fantastic Four story.
0: Right, yeah, that's true.
2: Later on, they, they dragged some things out of the storyboards he'd done and made a comic, or they published the comic that he had turned in that they'd sat on for a while, but this was his real swan song with the Fantastic Four that he didn't want to do anymore, but he didn't count that because this was really not the Fantastic Four, but right. to us it was, you
0: know. What were Saw and Flo's reactions to this story? Did they enjoy it too? Yeah, I
2: don't think, the funny thing is, I should have checked with uh, I mean, I stand knew about it. Saul may have at some stage when it was drawn, anyway. Saul learned about it. that was fine. Uh, Flo wasn't even working there anymore, although oh. I still saw her. I, I, it, what's funny is I should have already got it from They could have sued us, you know. But, but <laughs> you know, but I don't. I don't remember if she knew about it before it was published or drawn or whatever. I just don't recall.
0: Oh, okay, but she thought it was great. Good. These first issues of of What If, like the first 12 issues or so, have been really interesting because we've got a good mix of uh, serious, just kind of weird and bizarre, and then this one, which is just totally fun and, in fact, is like a satire of the whole concept. So it, it shows us right off the bat that really anything goes with What If, anything goes. We can do anything in the books, um, and, and, and <laughs> this is great. This really is kind of like an in joke for a lot of the people, um, for for people who really know Marvel comics. I'm not sure how much the, that fans would have really known about the behind the scenes stuff. Stanley, of course, was a great self promoter, and um, but did did people reading at the time really know about like uh, Sol Brodsky and and Flo Steinberg? I'm not sure. Stan and Kirby were definitely names to be recognized and I know that, you know, other people's names would be mentioned here and there, but um, but not as much. So I, in the letter page in this issue, there's a little bit of a, um, a how this came to be. So I'm going to skip ahead to the letter pages right before we get to the actual issue itself and just read this here. It says, A special nostalgic note. This issue marks, we think, an important milestone in Marvel history as we're sure a few zillion of you know will already have noticed, so we won't waste much time reminding you. Namely, for the first time in some eight years, Jack Kirby, the original awesome artist on the Fantastic Four, returns to drawing Marvel's first super team, if only for the space of a single and rather offbeat issue. It also represents in its own way the first time Jack has written an FF story as well. And I know that... People might dispute that a little bit. Uh, it's a little unclear how much of a role, an active role, Jack Kirby played in the writing of the issues. Um, it's said that Stan, as he got busier and busier, would more increasingly make his plots more and more shorter and more condensed so that he would uh, basically just be throwing Jack Kirby a basic, have him bite, fight the the scrolls and this happens, or whatever, and and then Jack would kind of lay out the entire thing, and I don't know if he did any scripting or such, but this is full, fully formed Jack Kirby, written and drawn, Fantastic Four. Now, uh, it go, the, the letter page goes on to say, Almost since the beginning of the What If series, Rascally Roy had wanted to do a story in which the Marvel bullpen gained the powers of the FF. His own notion was to feature Stan as Mr. Fantastic, Jack as the Thing, Flo Steinberg, or Marie Severin, as the Invisible Girl, and his rollic himself as the youthful, blonde, human torch, for obvious reasons. In an effort to devote his scripting time to other mags, however, Roy decided to offer the concept to Jack, who altered it by replacing Roy with Saul Brodsky, since Saul had been with the bullpen off and on since the 60s, and Jack knows him somewhat better, and coming up with his own unique plot and approach. As for Roy... Well, except for a bit of rewriting here and there, aided by the parallel world's concept of uh, neo-assistant editor Mark Grunwald, he's been content to read, savor, and enjoy. Hope you are doing the same. Ah, uh, so let's bring us back to the beginning of this issue. What if, and the title is different in the inside. What if the Fantastic Four were the original Marvel bullpen? I don't know if that makes a, a difference. with The title, switching it around. Um, But it is a different title there. But we have a Jack Kirby. We have Mike Royer doing the inking and Bill Ray doing the lettering. Now Mike Royer is a very frequent collaborator with Jack Kirby back in the 70s. Um, Of course, Mike never did any work with them on Fantastic Four um, that this time came after. But around this time, in the late 70s, when, when Jack came back to the studio, he was doing a lot of new titles, a lot of them that he was inventing himself, like Devil Dinosaur and The Eternals, and Mike Royer was there along with him uh, for that ride. Um, and then, so we start off here, again, another first for, for What If. We don't get a recap of things as it happened in what how we regularly know Marvel one, uh, 616. We kind of just jump into the action here. All of a sudden, the Watcher says, Hey, check it out. It's not the Fantastic Four, you know. Um, and we have some great caricatures of these guys as they looked in the 70s. It's, it's odd to see Stan Lee without his um, glasses, right? His glasses that have the, I guess they're sunglasses or such. But back in the 70s, he didn't wear those. But they are very, very iconic to how we remember Stan these days because he spent the last, I don't know, last few decades <laughs> always appearing in them, but not not in this comic here. Um, okay, so we're busting in right in the action. We are introduced to the people. This is how, I guess, the, the pe- right readers will know who these guys are. It says, instead, of instead, Mr. Fantastic is actually editor Stan Lee, who still occupies the room at the top in the teeming fantasy factory known as Marvel Comics. Sol Brodsky, Marvel VP, and Stan's second-in-command is secretly the Human Torch. As for Jack Kirby, hard-working artist, life is a flurry of frantic pencil-pushing in anticipation of the sudden change which will transform him into The Thing. And this reality's invisible girl is actually Marvel Comics' secretary Flo Steinberg, better known as the Sobriquet Fabulous Flo. I don't even know what that word is. I should look that up. Okay, how did such a Fantastic Four come to be? Watch and all shall re- be revealed great splash page love it we are thrown into a very typical fantastic four scene where they are fighting a giant monster all the fantastic four get to use their powers in some way but the real star of this opening scene is Flo, which is great because i find that the rest of the issue she really doesn't do a whole lot but in this one she manages to figure out how to take down the big brute by uh putting a force field around him so whatever gun he's he's uh using hit bounces off the force field and actually whams him knocking him out so she saves the day right off the bat and we are introduced to the fantastic four the marvel bullpen fantastic four we get to know a little bit about them they're looking for something they're looking for a box so they're going to check this guy's laboratory and here is a wonderful splash page full of kirby goodness look at all those kirby machines Uh, it's it's absolutely wonderful uh, and Stan's big head stretching way up, <laughs> way up high. Um, interesting color palette as well. Look at all the purples. I don't think that they use a whole lot of purples very often, um, back in this, these days, now, maybe in the seventies, but still it wasn't a, a very common color, uh, to use just because, uh, they would shy away from the ones that would appear more off register. Uh, and that's, uh, Purple because you are layering so many different colors on there Um, They it was a little harder to control the shade of purple. Of course these grays in the background are technically purples as well They're just lighter colors Uh, Oh Pierce. I have some comments here Pierce says I wonder if Jack Kirby identified with the thing all along. Yeah, he might have (laughs) Possibly I don't really know a whole lot about Jack Kirby's actual personality Um, I guess I should look up some videos some old videos with him or something So anyway, they find the the device. It's what they're looking for, and uh, and it sends out this burst of cosmic rays. Now they seem to be familiar with it. Oh yeah, all four of these guys are Jewish, and so we do get little words like shlemiel right here. Jack Kirby saying, "Why are we hiding here like shlemiels?" (laughs) We get that's pretty funny. And then moving forward, now we get to be taken into their origin story and. I was expecting it to mimic more closely the, the original story, but of course, how can that happen? Because these guys aren't going to go into space. They're, these guys are publishers and artists, so it's very, very different. Um, one little note here, when we first meet Stan in this flashback, we have a little editor's note that says that this is Stan pre-beard and pre-mustache for, I guess, people who who know him. I mean, yeah, he had a mustache in the in the first few pages but he's already kind of getting his iconic image. And there's um, Stan, I mean, Sir Jack Kirby with his gray hair and chomping on a cigar, as he was known to do. And he's got some artwork, and they're looking at uh, fan mail. And there's one issue of the Incredible Hulk here. And at this time, in this continuity, I guess they haven't created the concept of the Fantastic Four yet. The Marvel Universe uh, that they are creating has kickstarted without the Fantastic Four. and uh, They have the Hulk down there, but that's the only thing that we see on the walls. Anyway, all four of these people get together in one room and they open a surprise package. And inside is a box that has a note to it and the box, when you turn it on, starts to emit these cosmic rays. And when you get these cosmic rays, we have some really nice Kirby panels, classic Kirby pose when Saul is uh, leaping forward with one arm and then his, you know, one arm forward, one foot back. That's uh, Jack Kirby loved to do that pose quite often. Uh, very cool. It just looks different than what we're used to from the original Fantastic Four. Um, oh, no, sorry. It was it's Kirby who's wearing the, the striped shirt. Both Kirby and Saul are drawn with gray hair. So I think I'm mixing them up a little bit. But Kirby's got the big, thick eyebrows. That's kind of an iconic bit about Kirby as well. And uh, so Kirby breaks the machine with his shoe. I love it. <laughs> guess I don't know my own strength, he says. They And then they start to transform. And I love this transformation as it starts to unfold um, because it's like they're in a comic book publishing house. And so when, when Saul turns to Human Torch, he catches the comic book work on fire and he tries to save it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And this is interesting too. He's, when he turns to Torch, he says, I'm burning just like the comic book Torch. I've even set this, uh, the fire to this artwork. So he remembers, of course, he's referencing the Human Torch from the Golden Age. Uh, that's the only Fantastic Four character that existed at that time. He jumps out the window and his flame goes out and falls. And that's when we learn that Stan has the power to stretch because he saves Saul from, uh, from falling and, well, basically splatting on the ground. And of course, Flo is now invisible. And she kind of just stays invisible. She pops in and out and makes, just makes comments about, oh, I'm, a, I'm afraid or I'm worried that this is going to happen, uh, which is too bad because uh, she showed great promise in the beginning of this issue here. Anyway, they get a note that says, greetings, this box, and the, uh, open this box and live the ultimate fantasy, the S people, mysterious S people. So the, here's the cool part is that in, inspired by their own powers, they decide to create a comic book called the Fantastic 4 and they create these new characters based on their own personalities. So Billy he left a comment saying uh, pretty sure Jack was the thing. And if that's the case then this comic book definitely makes sense. I'm not sure if that's uh, that's true or not but yeah, it makes sense to me. And it then the watcher says here, strangely enough this now famous team soon became more famous than their four color the four color counterparts. Um, four-color, referencing the four-color printing process that the old comic books used to be printed printed by. Uh, And thus did life once more imitate art, and as the real Fantastic Four became a shining symbol of justice, so did the comic magazine characters prosper as well. And if you remember that early issue of Fantastic Four where um, Reed is called into the offices of Stan and Jack because Reed goes to Stan and Jack and tells him his tales, and gives him stories that they can turn into comic books, now it's kind of the other way around. So it's funny that Stan and Jack kind of, they, they technically exist in both realities there. <laughs> but yeah, we, we see the comparisons between the characters here. In the development of Reed Richards, it was evident that Stan was learning to use mechanical power with the same astounding flexibility stored in his body. Sue Storm was a, was a fit projection of Flo Steinberg's courageous dedication to a venture filled with countless dangers. Uh, and to watch the thing in Human Torch in action was to realize that Jack and Saul had achieved a great, com- a great command of spectacular power. So yeah, they're all based on their real-life counterparts. And they get a ton of fan mail. Another thing that Stan loved to do back in these days was tout how much fan mail his, his books always got and how many fan clubs there were based on his magazines. And uh, also on this page, i um, sorry for you who are listening on the podcast rather than on a live stream. There's one page here where we get uh, the, the other people in the bullpen are wondering, where do these four sneak off to all the time? They always come back, and then these two guys here, he says, well, we don't speak about it because we don't know. Luckily, Marie Severin, Johnny Ramita, and this new kid named Thomas are around to to take up the slack. So yeah, these two people in the front foreground here, John Ramita and Marie Severin. Um, and Roy Thomas, so pretty cool, pretty cool stuff to see them take, have a little cameo appearance as well. So we're taken back to Reed's laboratory, and the thing um, Reed is trying, or I say Reed Stan is trying to cure Saul from his from looking like the thing. But their adventure takes them to under the sea to find Namor the Submariner, and it says here in the bottom. On this alternate version of our the Submariner and other villains have real-life counterparts. Isn't that convenient for the sake of this story? <laughs> I love it. But again, um, interesting colors here with the the, the seafoam green and light yellow. Uh, you can't see it very well here uh, of of Atlantis with the sharp red colors. And you didn't get this kind of coloring usually. I don't think usually they they colored it a little bit differently. Um, I love Stan's dialogue in this. Uh, sorry, Jack's dialogue, rather. Jack's dialogue emulates a lot of what Stan did, the, and especially when Namor is speaking, you can hear Namor's voice very well. But also, the four of the of the Fantastic Four here still sound like their Fantastic Four counterparts, except for Stan. Uh, Stan sounds like Stan Lee. He's kind of very um, grandiose and such. Um, but Jack Kirby sounds like Ben Grimm, and Flo Steinberg sounds like Sue Storm at this time, and um, I guess Saul's a little bit different, because he's not a teenager, talking like a teenager. But uh, yeah, I, f- I find that they, they are very, very close to the original Fantastic Four, for the most part. So we find out that Namor has one of these boxes too, and through a series of events, they end up fighting And then they end up teaming up because they realize that they have a traitor in their midst and it's revealed that it's actually this whole thing is a plot by the Skrulls. They are the S-People. I wish they could have come up with a better name than calling themselves the S-People, but oh well, (laughs) kind of funny. Um, Lots of great action. Kirby does some wonderful action sequences. So this whole fight with Namor and all of the Fantastic Four is really good. And then we're going to get some more fighting Uh, in a little bit when they face off against the Skrull, too. Pierce says that Stan was way more affable than Reed. Yes, that's true. (laughs) Not as cold and, and standoffish. We go underwater. Here's something that I wasn't sure about because they're in a ship and they're looking for where the Skrulls are hiding out. They're underwater, and then the thing jumps... Out of the, the uh, out of the ship with Namor to go and bust the ship and, and the thing is talking underwater and I don't know I I must have missed it if they said that he's got some sort of device that's allowing him to breathe and talk underwater or what but he's doing that so anyway they save the day it's pretty crazy uh, that uh, they 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 defeat the scroll. All of the scrolls, I guess. I don't even know if they if there were more than one of them, but they, the plan was to kind of use these devices to kill all humans, but for some reason, the Fantastic Four survived, and we were mutated, and so the Skrull had to continue experimenting with Namor, and then they were going to move on to, I don't know, the rest of the world or something. Anyway, kind of a weird plot. goes in a bunch of weird directions, but it's fun. And that's, that's all I'm asking in, the, in in an issue like this. It's like, we don't need to have a huge plot. We're just here to see the people behind the scenes as the superheroes, and so it's pretty cool. Uh, but what did you think? You can leave me some comments if you want. Uh, leave me some comments. Did you like this issue? Is it one of your favorites of, of the What If series? Or is it like, did you not get it because you didn't know the characters? I don't really know. Um, yeah, I don't know how th- this one was received. I'm looking forward to seeing the letters pages for this particular issue in a few few issues down the road to see what, what we think about that. One last note here at the very bottom. It says, next issue, at last, what if Conan walked the earth today? But it's not happening in the next issue. It's being delayed again, and the next issue is a Hulk story. Huh. Well, I hope that uh, you find these podcasts interesting i find that i'm recapping the plot a whole lot more than i usually do or usually like to do um because there's so much there's so much story and so much to cram because i like to point out the differences so going through the issue chronologically to point out where things change or where things stay the same is kind of a the you know the way i'm tackling these issues here Uh, pierce says fun that the marvel crew made one for themselves rather than for the fans yeah This probably was for themselves. Although the fans also voted for this because this was one of the options in the letter pages a few issues back where Roy was like, vote for the ones you want to see. And then this did make the top choice, is one of the top choices according to the letter page in the previous issue. So fans wanted to see it too. Okay, if that is all we have for this one, let's take a look at what's going to happen in the next issue here. In the next issue, what if Rick Jones had become the Hulk?
1: At the time I did the Hulk, that Hulk story, the stories I referenced, you know, weren't really that old. I wasn't, I wasn't like going back to the 1940s or the 1950s. Right. And so I, I kind of remembered generally what characters were involved and everything. But the fun part of that, see, I grew up in the 50s. I was a street kid in Chicago, and I knew how hoodlums and J.D.s talked and everything because I was one of them. And we, <laughs> and so I, I wanted to. I figured if Rick. Jones became the Hulk, that's how he would sort of, he would bring some of that over into the cult Hulk character. And that was really fun. I really had a, a ball doing that. And, yeah. um, and I also wanted to do one with a happy ending for a change. And you know, all of that, were, you know, something goes tragically wrong because things worked out a different way because you know somebody stepped on a butterfly or something. And that was a, <laughs> I had a really good time writing that story
0: right on the cover it says marvel's tv sensation and over on facebook i forgot to get this ready so i can't show you but over on facebook roland left a comment with a cool picture that says what if rick james had become the hulk and put a little cartoon of rick james in there it's really really funny very funny cartoon let's see You can also have on hand the first volume of The Incredible Hulk Epic Collections, Man or Monster, because we reference, of course, the the origin story quite heavily. You can also have on hand Captain America Epic Collection Volume 2, because it has the Jim Steranko issue with The Incredible Hulk, which is referenced here when Rick Jones becomes Bucky. And we've talked about that one, actually, in a different what-if issue. It's important here, too. Then we have another issue. I think the second volume of Captain Marvel Masterworks, Captain Marvel Marvel Masterworks is going to be referenced there as, as well as I don't know maybe the 4th or 5th volume of um, Captain Marvel after the Jim Starlin run is quite heavily referenced here as well as Avengers Epic Collection volume 5 The Kree-Skrull War This Beachhead Earth in all of these, Rick Jones has had a very, very complicated career, and he's been a sidekick for many people. And we're kind of exploring all three of those main ones in this one story uh, being a sidekick to the Hulk, being the sidekick to Captain Marvel, and being the sidekick to Captain America. And I-, I love how Roy Thomas li- lies this out. It's like his trajectory. Uh, is is laid out as it is in the regular 616 universe, but each time it's interrupted by him becoming the Hulk. And so the Hulk kind of messes up everything going forward here. So let's see how this plays out. It's it's very cool. I'll pull up the credits here. What if number 12 is written by Don Glutt and penciled by Sal Busema? Sal, of course, is the artist of the Hulk at this time, so it's not a stretch that we get to see him in in the artwork here. It's very cool. It's exactly as you would expect. Um, Bill Black as the inker. He was the inker in the last issue here. And it says also, uh, Jim Shooter, consulting editor, and Roy Thomas, editor. I'm sure that they had uh, some stuff to say in the creation of this issue because it goes through... Uh, a lot of different periods of Marvel history, so I'm sure they had to make sure they got their facts straight, their timelines correct, and everything like that. Um, but yeah, so here we go. We start off right right off the bat. Bruce Banner's like, get out of there, there's going to be a bomb exploding. And the very first thing that happens that's different is that Rick Jones decides to throw Bruce down into the ditch and take the brunt of the explosion um, instead of instead of Bruce doing that, and so of course he gets Rick gets belted with the gamma rays and and is affected. Uh, and later on, when he, he gets checked up, he realizes that something's wrong, and he turns into the Hulk. And I love this uh, when they he he busts out of there, and the, the guys like, um, look what just smashed through the wall! What is it? That that Hulk? It's a monster with a kid's face, <laughs> like something out of I was a teenage Frankenstein. Great line there. And I like that, yeah, Sal doesn't draw the Hulk like he, he does. The The facial features are a little smaller. Um, Hulk, he draws Hulk with a with a big brow usually, and you don't get that kind of big brow. He still has the Rick Jones type hair. And so he does look different. He does look, I, I mean, I guess sort of like more like Rick Jones. It's neat that, that uh, Sal was able to do that after drawing the Hulk so many times the regular way he usually does. So moving on here. The events of the fir- in the first six issues of The Incredible Hulk way back in the 60s uh, take place kind of in the desert where Bruce and Rick hide out in this isolation, in this cave that they've kind of f- f- re- retrofitted to be an anti-Hulk cave. <laughs> Bruce would lock him because at that point, Bruce turned into Hulk when the sun went down. And so he would lock himself into this Hulk-proof room at night and wait till the Hulk would pass, and then he'd get up in the morning, and, and Rick Jones would stay Outside the door, just to make sure that Bruce is okay. And this time, the roles are reversed, and Rick is inside. And instead, now this leaves Bruce able to work all night on uh, on, on devices that will help turn him turn Rick Jones back, uh, which is kind of handy. But it doesn't really go that way. Um, oh yeah, one other thing that you should you might want to keep on hand is Avengers number one, because we do see the events of Avengers playing out at the beginning um, here, like right at the beginning when Loki uses the Hulk to destroy a train track, a train trestle, and then that brings the Avengers together. That still happens. Um, and then you see the the Phantom, what is he called? The Space Phantom uh, in issue number two. And that causes uh, Bruce. Bruce actually is able to save the day. Instead of Hulk leaving the team and storming off and the rest of the events of, of Avengers number three, four, and five taking place, um, Bruce is manages to cure the cure uh, Rick Jones of his Hulk curse, and everything seems okay. And so he goes on his merry old way. And Rick Jones's life from then on kind of takes the similar path. And he eventually meets up back up with with Captain America fighting Hydra. Now this is the same issue, uh, except in the Jim Steranko issue, Captain America was fighting the Hulk, but of course Rick Jones is the Hulk in this one, so they have to change things up. And Rick Jones jumps in and helps him, and then Captain America takes him under his wing and he becomes Bucky. Now, it's, it's different in the fact that at first Captain America didn't want Bucky or didn't want Rick to be Bucky because of all the guilt he felt over losing the other teenage psychic. That's what happened in the original version. But in this one, right away, Rick shows his stuff because he's now. He's, he's a lot more confident, and he's a lot of, more of a fighter because of the whole Hulk situation that he's gone through. So I think Cap sees something different in him. So there's a, there's a big change right here, and they become a, a really good team. And here we have Sal's recreation of the amazing double page spread. That Jim Steranko does in in Captain America 110 uh, doesn't look nearly as impressive as the double-page spread, but it's pretty good. And so, yeah, they fight this battle with the HYDRA agents, and right in the middle, Rick turns back into the Hulk because he's under such incredible pressure being in this fight. So the cure that Bruce Banner made didn't didn't stick. Um, And I love this. I I love the dialogue that Don Don Glut puts in here. He he doesn't sound like Bruce Banner's Hulk. He definitely is a Rick Jones Hulk, saying things like, "Uh, Hydra wants to rumble with Hulk, huh? Groovy. Then Hulk gets to bust some heads. And that was one of the iconic things about Rick Jones in the 60s, was he really embraced the beatnik kind of lingo and slang of the day. And so Hulk talks like that through this entire issue, which is really funny. Um, it's really funny to see, it's really funny to read and it's consistent, which is great because this is a different person. So whereas this is the Hulk, of course, it doesn't have the same mind as the Bruce Banner Hulk. So I like those, that little detail there. Billy is with us again today. He says, love Sal's work. Oh, it's different, different Billy. Uh, Love Sal's work. Yes, I do too. He's definitely a great artist. Uh, wonderful storyteller, and the pacing in this issue is really, really good. And this is a testament to Sal's abilities because there's so much crammed into this. It's a double size issue, but there's still so much story, and it's like little vignettes. It's told with like the the part about the origin story, the part of with the Avengers, the part with Captain America, and then coming up is the part, a couple different parts with um, with Captain Marvel, and then the conclusion. And they're all little snippets of this life that rick had as the hulk and none of it seems rushed all of it tells exactly what it needs to tell it's really really well done so anyway we move forward here captain america or um the hulk jumps away and leaves captain america so cap doesn't have a sidekick uh cap yeah cap doesn't have a sidekick anymore Rick is on his own, and and he sees this apparition, which is told in Captain Marvel number 17. And it turns out in those series of events, in in reality, he gets stuck with these bracelets. And if you know your Marvel history, that means that whenever he hits the bracelets together, he trades spots with Captain Marvel, who's stuck in the negative zone. So Captain Marvel's in the negative zone. Rick is here. He slams the bands together. All of a sudden, Rick is now in the negative zone, and Captain Marvel is on Earth. And so we say that these are scenes from Avengers number 97, which you can pick up in that upcoming epic collection that'll be out in a couple months. But yeah, so this is interesting here. The Supreme Intelligence, the Cree, the Cree Supreme Intelligence enhances Rick Jones's mind so that he can suppress the urges to become the Hulk. So now Rick has some more powers that allow him to stay in control, and also gives him the, the necessary means to stay alive in the negative zone, which happens in the comics. Um, but the, but the Supreme Intelligence says I'm giving these powers because you have to save the entire human race, and that of course is a key moment in the Kree Skrull War. Spoiler alert: if you haven't read that, uh, and then so the whole Kree Skrull War is summed up in one panel here. <laughs> and but but that is a uh, um, a pretty epic story if you care to read that one you got to check that one out, um, and then we move on to Rick's life. He tries to stay apart from Captain Marvel as much as possible, but finally the, the events take a turn. This is just before Jim Starlin joins the book. Rick Jones has to let Captain Marvel back into his life, and then he goes back into the Negative Zone. So here's where things get a little bit different because. Bruce Banner is still not the Hulk so he's still been all of this time devoting his life to helping Rick, to helping solve Rick Jones's problem. Now he takes his his uh, his work to to Mr. Fantastic to see if the both of them can can get on board here. And then here in Captain Marvel number 34, he's affected Captain Marvel is affected by the nerve gas. This is what eventually leads to the the incredible story the death of Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel 34 is, I think, plotted by Jim Starlin, but Jim Starlin didn't actually write that one or script it. So it it conveniently skips over all of Jim's run, which is really the only Captain Marvel that I've read. I haven't read the stuff before and I haven't read the stuff after. Uh, So all of this is kind of new territory for me. But you don't have to have read this. They still do a really good job of explaining exactly what's going on so that you can still enjoy the issue not having read those particular stories. But of course, it's definitely more enjoyable if you have read those stories. Okay, moving right along here, this is a brilliant idea. And I don't know why this isn't... Maybe this is thought of in the comics, because I haven't read all of them. But, like, if Rick Jones is in the negative zone, and Mr. Fantastic knows all about the negative zone, why don't you just go into the negative zone and bring Rick Jones out of the negative zone so now they're both on Earth? Doesn't doesn't that make sense? It seems to make sense, but they're going to try that in this issue here. And he's also created a device that will separate Bruce and the Hulk And it references Hulk number 130. That story is told in um, Hulk Epic Collection number 4 in the hands of Hydra, where the Hulk and Bruce get split. And the thing about that story is that Bruce eventually has to merge back because the Hulk is just running amok on Earth. But because they're being split in the negative zone, they don't have to do that. So now Rick is free of... that curse oh yeah there's a great battle between the hulk and annihilus i don't know if hulk ever fights annihilus in the regular marvel continuity but this is a pretty good one (laughs) um yes okay here here we are they split rick jones is split from the hulk rick jones is trapped in the negative zone mr fantastic stretches as far as he can to pull rick jones out of the negative zone and the hulk is left there to finish his battle and everything seems like it's okay there and captain marvel is is okay this is before he's died he still is is, uh probably has early stages of cancer at this point but we find out that the hulk is now living uh, the best kind of life in the negative zone smashing things that he pleases no one's there to bother him he's just kind of doing his thing Wonderful. It ends on a happy note. And meanwhile, uh, Bruce and Mr. Fantastic are still going to try and find a way to cure the Hulk. But I don't know how they'll do that. If they cure this Hulk, will he just cease to exist? Or will he turn into Rick Jones so there will be two Rick Joneses? Not exactly sure how that works but this has been great i've really enjoyed the don glut issues now uh, he has barely done any work for marvel and he did a lot of work with um i think with ec and with gold key he did some he created some comics for them uh, his main work i think is in film if you go to his website and just look at all the stuff he's done he's he makes movies director he's an actor he's done stunt doubling he's in a he's been in bands and has released albums and like he's written novels he's done all sorts of stuff very very interesting guy but in the marvel circles he's a name that's not talked about people don't really know him but he's doing really good work here these all of these issues that he's done I've totally enjoyed so i uh, i don't know how long he lasts i think he's got a few more issues in volume 2 and then we won't see him anymore um, but yeah, this this was a good issue. Very very well done. Quite enjoyable. I enjoyed the making the Hulk his personality. You know, hu- recognizably Hulk, but still different enough with, in terms of his his uh, lingo and and the way he spoke. Uh, I thought that Rick Jones his motivations for doing what he did uh, fit even with this new this new complication of being the Hulk. Everything still worked out and um yeah great great story i love how i love the stories that it, not, it doesn't just change one aspect of marvel history but it throws in so many references to um i don't know to just whatever else is going on in this era of marvel history um so many references so many little ties to the other stuff a lot of fun to read and a lot of fun to explore and and also this is going to ex- inspire me to go and uh, search out those issues of Captain Marvel that I haven't read. I'll find them on Marvel Unlimited, and I'll, I'll take a read to see how the events played out in real time. Billy here says, I still enjoy this era Hulk compared to Immortal Hulk. It's true. They're very, very, very different. Immortal Hulk, I've quite enjoyed as well. That's that title is just bonker's nuts, bizarre. But um, very, very compelling, very interesting, a completely different take on Hulk. If you wanted like a a horror story, a horror magazine that is Star the Hulk, you might want to check that one out. Um who's the artist on that? I think it's Joe Bennett. Is that his name? He's he's a really, really good, really excellent artist as well, and Al Ewing. Good writer. Um but yeah, I mean they're so different this era of Hulk. And I've if you listen to my podcast Um, I've done the first four volumes of the Epic Collections as podcast episodes now, and the fourth volume is very good. There's a lot of really cool stuff there, and my co-host Alex tells me that, you know, moving forward through Roy Thomas's run here, it it just gets better. So the 70s is kind of where it's at for the Hulk, 70s and 80s. So oh yeah and then right at the bottom it says next issue what if conan walked the earth today this time for sure (laughs) because this this one issue has been delayed so many times and they've been hinting at it in the next box at the bottom but they just keep on having to push it and push it which is also amazing that i don't know if these issues that like the don glut issues have to be rushed Or if they just have them in their back pocket because if they're saying next issue conan and then conan doesn't appear they gotta like slot something in there really fast and uh but these don't seem that rushed like they're well thought out they're well formed and especially being double size and hulk's and sal busema's doing regular work on then hulk and probably three other books at the time because he was a, a maniac when it came to penciling But Marvel Unlimited does not have issue number 13. Why not? I don't know. So yeah, it just skips to number 14. The issue is reprinted in What If Volume 2. What If Conan the Barbarian Walked the Earth Today by Sal Buscema? Roy Thomas and Sal Buscema do this issue because they were the regulars on the title at the time. And holy cow, it just looks so amazing. A little bit of a secret here. I have never read any Conan the Barbarian, so this is going to be the first Conan the Barbarian story that I will have read when I read this. I don't know if that's good or if that's bad. Hopefully it's okay that I'm doing that. (laughs) But anyway, thanks for joining me. I'm glad that you were able to be here today, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.